A young woman goes missing under bizarre circumstances one night in New Hampshire, leaving no clues as to where she may be. Sixteen years later, investigators are still stumped. Did she run away from her problems, or did she get into trouble she could not escape? Welcome, welcome to the KMH Podcast. Hope everyone's enjoying their quarantine right now. I've certainly got a house full of people in that very same situation. Many of them much smaller and louder than I would like for them to be. But here we are and we'll do the best we can under the the situation we've been dealt. We are going to tackle one of the strangest missing persons cases you can find on the internet. And because of this, it is extremely popular. Some have referred to it as the first real missing persons case of the social media age, and it involves a young lady by the name of Maura Murray. Because of the immense interest in this case, you may have heard of it, and there are a plethora of resources available for consumption, all with their own theories and factual summaries. There's websites, blogs, subreddits, podcasts. There's even a television series. If this case interests you at all, There is plenty of content to consume. Now, if if you've been listening to this podcast, you know my format isn't to dive deep into cases. I could easily spend multiple episodes discussing each step of this investigation and all the rabbit trails that can be found, but I won't. This episode will simply be a grand overview of the case, a 30-minute study. Certainly, if there's enough demand, I'll circle back and do a multi-piece mini-series on it. But for the time being, know that if this interests you, you can spend days upon days doing your own research. We're just going to take the 30,000-foot view of it. With everything going on in the world, this may be a good way to pass the time for you if you are interested in it. Uh, will certainly eat up a day. Trust me. I, I did my best to limit this to around 30 minutes, and it was a challenge. But with that, let's get on to the show. Maura was born in May of 1982 in Hanson, Massachusetts. She was a Star Trek athlete in high school and was even accepted to the United States Military Academy, where she studied chemical engineering. Now, while on a training expedition at Fort Knox, Morrow was caught stealing a small amount of makeup from the commissary. This was considered an honor code violation, and she was allowed to leave West Point without being officially expelled. She transferred to the University of Massachusetts to study nursing. In November of 2003, Morrow got in a little bit more legal trouble, She was caught using a stolen credit card to buy food. The charges against her were dismissed after three months of good behavior. On the evening of Thursday, February 5th, 2004, while working at her campus security job, Maura suddenly burst into tears around 10.30 p.m. When her supervisor tried to figure out what was going on, Maura was completely unresponsive and was zoned out. The supervisor escorted the zombie-like Mora back to her dorm room near midnight 
And the only words Mora could utter were, my sister. It would later be learned, and by later I mean 2017, that this likely referred to Mora's sister being released from rehab that day, as she had a serious alcohol problem. And her sister had an emotional breakdown while sitting in a liquor store parking lot that evening. The following Saturday, February 7th, Moore's father came to visit. The pair decided to go car shopping and enjoy dinner together. After dinner, Mora dropped her father off at his hotel room and borrowed his car to attend a party. Mora left the party around 2.30 a.m., which would now be on Sunday, February 8th, but ended up having an accident around 3.30 a.m., causing somewhere between eight dollars and $10,000 worth of damage to her father's vehicle after hitting a guardrail. The responding officer completed an accident report, but apparently no sobriety tests were performed. The officer took Mora to her father's hotel room where she spent the night. I find that unusual that at that time of night in a college town that police would not conduct any sort of sobriety checks. Uh, especially when more is coming from a party, and I have no doubt they would have very good reason to try a attempt to determine whether or not she was intoxicated. Nevertheless, at 4.49 a.m. that Sunday morning, Mora called her boyfriend from her father's phone. It is unknown what was discussed during the call. Mora's father returned to his home later that day. He called Mora around 11.30 that night to remind her to get the accident report forms he needed for his insurance claim. In the early morning hours of February 9th, Mora used her computer to receive MapQuest directions to the Berkshires and to Burlington, Vermont. That afternoon, around 1 p.m., Mora emailed her boyfriend stating she was not in the mood to talk to anyone. She also made a phone call inquiring about renting a condo in Bartlett, New Hampshire, a place her family had frequented. Mora also called a fellow nursing student for unknown reasons. At 1.24 p.m., Mora emailed both her work supervisor and her nursing professors, stating that she would be out of town for about a week as she had suffered a death in the family. This was not true. There was no deaths in Mora's family, and no one is sure why she sent such an email. At 2.18 that afternoon, she called her boyfriend and left a message, saying they would talk later. Mora left campus around 3 p.m. Forty minutes later, she stopped at an ATM and withdrew $280. She then purchased $40 worth of liquor at a nearby store, including vodka, boxed wine, Kahlua, and Bailey's Irish Cream. Security footage demonstrated she was completely alone when she made this purchase. At some point during that afternoon, she picked up the accident report forms her father had requested. She checked her voicemail at 4.37 p.m., which would be the last time she ever used her phone. Fast forward to 7.27 p.m. We're in Woodsville, New Hampshire, and a resident reports a car accident outside of her home. The car had smashed into a snowbank and was now facing westbound on the eastbound side of the road. 
The resident reported during the call seeing a man smoking a cigarette in the vehicle, but later claimed she only saw a red light in the vehicle, which very well could have been the light from a cell phone. A neighbor also reported seeing the vehicle, as well as someone walking around the vehicle at the same time. This vehicle was Mora's car. A third neighbor drove by, pulled up alongside Mora, and offered to help. The neighbor reported speaking with a young woman who was visibly shaking from the cold but saw no obvious signs of injury. He offered to give her aid, but she claimed to have already called AAA and then begged the neighbor not to call the police. This third neighbor went home and nevertheless called the police at 7.43 p.m. He said he could not see the vehicle from his house, but saw several vehicles travel down the road where Mora's vehicle was stuck. Another resident who passed the scene claims to have seen a police SUV parked face-to-face with Mora's vehicle at 7.37 p.m. The resident claims to have stopped briefly, but saw no one in the area and continued on home. This report directly contradicts the official police log, which has the first officer arriving on scene at 7.46. So, that's a lot of information dump. Let's summarize it real quick. At 7.27, somebody notices that there's been a car accident, and it's Mora's vehicle. A couple of cars drive by, one stops to try to help, but the woman, Mora, presumably, freaks out, says she's fine, she's obviously freezing in the cold but doesn't want any aid, and begs the driver not to call the police. Nevertheless, he went home and called the police at 7.43. The official police reports say that an officer responded at 7.46. However, another driver who passed by saw a police SUV parked face-to-face with Moore's vehicle at 737. Now, according to the official police report, Mora went missing during the 10 minutes between when the first neighbor stopped to ask if she needed help and the police arrival on the scene. However, if the resident who claimed to have seen a police officer's SUV is to be believed, Mora went missing in less than a one-minute window which is tough to do, really, really tough to do. Okay, so, vehicle, what was in there? Police found Mora's AAA card. The blank accident report forms her father had requested. Some winter gloves, CDs and makeup, some diamond jewelry, printed off driving directions to Burlington, Vermont, Mora's favorite stuffed animal, an empty bottle of beer, a damaged box of wine, and red wine stains. These wine stains were also found outside of the vehicle. There was a bottle of Coke that had been emptied and filled with wine sitting in the cup holder next to the driver's seat. Mora's cell phone, credit cards, debit cards... And some of the liquor she had purchased were all missing. 
the phone and cards have never been used since the day of the accident. Shortly after police arrived on the scene, a man witnessed a young woman walking quickly on foot east from when Mora's vehicle was left sometime between 8 and 8.30. This woman was wearing jeans, a dark coat, and a light-colored hoodie. This sighting, however, was not reported for three months because the man did not connect his sighting with the reports of Mora having gone missing. After the accident scene was cleared, the local garage where the car was towed found a rag from Mora's emergency roadside kit stuffed into her muffler. Police officially declared Mora missing at noon the next day, almost 24 hours after the last confirmed sighting of her. So here we are the next day, and police finally issue a bolo for Mora. Bolo being, be on the lookout. They spend the day reaching out to Mora's family and preparing to conduct a formal search for the next day, which would be February 11th. The search is going to be headed by the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. So on the morning of February 11th, the Fish and Game Department, Mora's family, and other local volunteers began to search the area surrounding the accident. The search covered nearly 20 miles. A police dog caught Morris scent and followed a trail for about 100 yards, only to lose the scent in the middle of a road. Police suspected this indicated that Mora entered a vehicle. No footprints, however, were ever found near the vehicle. Police looked at Mora's dorm room, and found that all of her belongings were packed, and all the artwork had been pulled down from her walls. On top of one of the packed boxes was a printed email from Mora's boyfriend, which indicated their relationship was experiencing some rocky times. Later that night, Mora's boyfriend arrived to help with the search around 5 p.m. local time. Police interviewed him privately before letting him assist. After his interview he discovered that he had a voicemail on his phone, which had been turned off during his flight and subsequent travels. The voicemail is of a woman crying, and he identifies the voice as Mora's. Police trace the call and learn that it came from a calling card issued by the American Red Cross. On February 12th, Police are working under the assumption that Mora intended to run away or intended to commit suicide. Mora's loved ones disputed these theories rather vehemently. The police also begin reporting Mora was likely intoxicated when the crash occurred, though the neighbor who spoke to her refuted that claim, saying she seemed cold and she seemed scared, but in no way impaired. After 10 days of searching, the FBI joined in and announced the search was now a nationwide one. This followed on the heels of Moore's family learning the New Hampshire police never alerted the Vermont authorities to Moore's disappearance, despite the fact that there were driving directions in her car indicating that that was her target location. Now, understand, too, that it's very unusual for the FBI to join in in a search like this. They may be called in to assist, 
but to come in and make the declaration on their own that it was a nationwide search is unusual because kidnappings are not typically under the jurisdiction of the FBI. There would have to be some underlying federal crime for them to have jurisdiction, such as human trafficking. Later that same day after the FBI's announcement, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department conducted a second, more extensive search. Helicopters armed with thermal imaging were sent out, along with tracking dogs and cadaver dogs. However, nothing meaningful was ever found. On March 2nd, exhausted from the search, Morris' family returned home. Morris' father returned nearly every weekend, however, to continue the search, until April, when the Haverdale police asked him to stop due to the trespassing complaints they had been receiving from his efforts. On July 13th, police conducted another search within one mile of the accident location. This was the first search that was conducted without snow on the ground, yet nothing new was found. Sometime in late 2004, a man gave Mora's father a knife he claimed his brother had used to kill Mora. The man claimed his brother began acting really weird the night Mora went missing, and soon thereafter had scrapped his car. But, when analyzed, the knife did not have Mora's blood on it, and the man's family claimed he was a drug addict who was likely looking for a way to collect the reward money that had been posted. Two years later, in 2006, the New Hampshire League of Investigators, a group of retired detectives and police officers, started working on the case. Meanwhile, a former police chief from outside of New Hampshire began looking into the case and claimed it was beyond a mere missing persons case and that something ominous happened. In October of 2006, volunteers led a two-day search within a few miles of where Mora's car was found. A nearby A-frame house caused cadaver dogs to go bonkers. Carpet samples from the house were sent to the New Hampshire State Police for analysis, but the results of those tests were never released to the public. Oddly, it just so happens that this house was owned by the man who gave Mora's dad the knife. He refused to allow any further searches of the house. However, in 2009, the house was sold. And in April of that year, the new owners allowed for additional searching and even permitted an excavation of part of their property. Again, unfortunately, nothing was found. Beginning in early 2012, a series of YouTube videos were posted by a user named Mr112Dirtbag. And these videos contained cryptic clues concerning Mora that seemed to point to where she could be found and what caused her disappearance. Professional criminologists, as well as Mora's family, dismissed the videos as a cruel ploy for attention, however. UMass happened to keep a cabin in New Hampshire that was regularly used by the athletic department and could be rented by students. The path to the cabin from UMass 
follow the path Mora took the night she went missing. However, there's no evidence that I could find that this cabin was ever searched by police, which appears to have been approximately 25 miles from the accident site. Okay, now we're going to jump into some theories here. I think there's about four primary ones that most people on the interweb buy into. We'll move through them one at a time. The first theory is that Mora was abducted and murdered. This is the theory that Mora's father subscribes to. He believes the kidnapper was a local who just happened upon Mora, took advantage of the situation, took her to the A-frame house where the cadaver dogs were going crazy and killed her there. This appears to be the most popular theory embraced by internet sleuths, though usually more in the vein of more being abducted by someone who just stumbled into her rather than someone who knew her or a serial killer or anything like that. There is an investigative journalist by the name of James Renner who believes that Mora actually ran off to Canada to start a new life. He argues Mora met a friend who would serve as a tandem driver near the scene of the accident. Renner believes Mora was attempting to hide a pregnancy from her abusive boyfriend. The father of this child is alleged to be the assistant track coach of her college team. Renner's theory is intriguing, as Mora's ex, Bill Roche, has been accused by multiple women of sexual abuse and rape dating back to 2004, the very year Mora went missing. One of the victims claimed Roche would sometimes call her Mora when he was particularly upset and violent. He has also been accused of using fake social media accounts to attempt to steer the investigation and also to harass or shame those who spoke ill of him. He even tried to become a moderator of the subreddit devoted to Mora's case. Rosh will be going to trial sometime this year on those sexual abuse and rape charges. The third theory is that Mora left her campus with suicide on her mind. The accident caused her to panic and deviate from her plan. Folks who subscribe to this theory note the downward spiral of her life and point to a hit-and-run accident which occurred on campus about the time she left as her personal breaking point. Mora was never tied formally to this accident, but apparently a student was hit by a vehicle and injured severely, and the driver of the vehicle fled the scene. My understanding is that driver has never been caught. The final popular theory is that Mora died of exposure. After having the accident and having been drinking and driving, Mora panicked, not wanting more trouble with the law, and ran into the woods. Remember, she was very upset with the driver who stopped to help her when he suggested calling the police. She relied on her track skills to get as much distance as possible between her and the scene so she would not have to deal with the police. Being unfamiliar with the area, however, Mora ran towards nothing but trees. Without any real supplies or sense of direction, Mora quickly succumbed to the elements. 
So those are the four big theories you'll find if you look online. And I'll give you my thoughts on them. Okay, so first, the suicide one doesn't jive with me. If she was intent on killing herself, I don't think she would have packed the car in the manner she did. She certainly wouldn't have stopped at an ATM for extra cash. She wouldn't have needed it. Maybe enough to buy the liquor, but not $280 when she only spent $40. It also doesn't explain why she took the time to get the accent report forms, why she would bring her jewelry with her, her favorite stuffed animals. And I also believe that if she had killed herself, the body would have been found by now. You know, it's pretty tough to hide your body once you've killed yourself. And enough people and dogs have passed through the area that one would think her body would have been found by now. I think it's unlikely that she would have traveled dozens of miles to commit suicide. She would go off to a place that she felt was secluded and from there commit the act. Kind of for the same reasons, I'm not totally sold on the exposure theory either. I think this one is a possible answer, but I don't think it's likely. Again, Mora was a track star, and she certainly could have made some serious distance if she wanted to flee from the scene. She had a cell phone with her, however, and you think that would be a potential means of obtaining help. Now, I don't know how good the cell service was in this area back in 2004, so that may have not been a meaningful option. But nevertheless, we're left with the question of why couldn't dogs find her body? Why couldn't searchers find her body? And going back to some of the things we discussed before, that would also apply for the suicide theory. Why were there no footprints found leading into the woods? And why did the scent for the dogs to track disappear so suddenly? And of course, how did she hide her body? Now, I think either of the other two theories are, are the most plausible. I think that the fact the dogs lost the scent in the middle of a road is a very key fact. I agree with the police. This indicates to me that she had to get into a vehicle. So let's walk our way through both of these theories. So first we'll go with James Rayner's idea that she escaped to Canada. The idea is that a vehicle was following her or she was following a vehicle in a tandem travel team. Once she had her accent, Rayner claimed it would take about seven minutes for another vehicle to find a spot to turn around and return to the accident scene. Time would be of the essence if they were trying to escape to Canada, so it would make sense that Mora would grab only her most essentials to continue the journey. Because the New Hampshire police never contacted any out-of-state authorities about Mora, it is entirely possible they could have reached the border and entered Canada without any problems. Renner claims to have photographic evidence of Mora in Quebec on his website, which he as always, can find in my show notes. And I'll admit the woman in the photo does favor Mora. My concern with this theory, which, again, is that a covert escape was needed because Mora was having an affair with one of her track coaches and her boyfriend, who we now know to be kind of crazy violent, couldn't learn of the affair, is why Mora left 
her father in the dark, especially since she took the trouble to obtain the accident report. I don't understand why she would never contact him again and let him know that she was safe, but she couldn't tell him where she was. It's also concerning that if she really was thought to be pregnant, that she would be drinking. But we have to admit that Mora has a history of making bad decisions, and maybe this is another one. Also, if Mora was running away to Canada, who did she run away with? I never found an answer to this question that satisfied me. As to the track coach and the affair, that seems to be accurate. Renner interviewed the track coach, and he passed along that Mora did have an affair with him. He also mentioned that Mora expressed a strong desire to disappear, and the coach believed that one day Mora would end up running away to Mexico. So, that certainly gives some support to the idea that she wanted to escape her life. Now, the final theory is foul play. I don't know why Mora would refuse help from the passing motorist right after her accident, but agree to jump into a car of another stranger. Which would suggest that she knew the person who she got in the vehicle with. Which brings us back to the second driver theory, which we don't have any information on. From what we've learned in recent years, Moore's boyfriend jumps out as someone who she would get into the car with and who would also be dangerous to her. But it seems to be undisputed that he was not in the area at the time of her disappearance. He was on active duty in the Army and had to fly in to be part of the search the next day. Unless he somehow was on leave, he would have a hard time making the trip with Mora, killing her, hiding the body, getting back into a position where he'd have to then fly back to New Hampshire. But basic police work would have been able to explore and expose that thread. So I'm going to assume that did not happen and that he did have a solid alibi. Even though I don't really like giving this dude the benefit of the doubt. If you read about him, he just seems like total, total trash. So ultimately, I have no idea what happened here. Maybe she ran off to Canada. Maybe she was a victim of foul play. But I think one thing we can all agree on is this is one crazy missing persons case. We spent this entire time discussing the case, and there are so many questions that we did not even begin to address, which is frustrating, but it leaves you all with some homework if you're interested. So some of these questions are, what's the deal with the police SUV that was seen at the scene of the, crime, of the, of the accident? Was it really there? If so, who was driving it? Where was the officer and Mora when the motorist passed by and stopped to look to see what was going on? This is minor, but why on earth was there a rag stuffed into the tailpipe of Mora's car? It would have to come again from her emergency kit from the trunk of her car, so it's not 
a random thing she found in her car and for some reason threw in there. She had to purposefully dig that out and add it into her tailpipe. Why were Moore's belongings packed in her dorm room? The semester wasn't over. There was no indication that she was leaving school. Indeed, she had emailed her teachers and her supervisor stating that she would be back in a week. Why did Moira take her cell phone and her credit cards, only to never use them? If we accept the idea that she was escaping to Canada, then we would think that her cell phone would be pinging off of towers, which never happened, or that she would use it to make calls in some way. Again, why take it if you're never going to use it? And that's the situation we have here. A big question, what on earth was the deal with that A-frame house? And why have the police never released their forensic report on the cadaver? I'm sorry, on the carpet that made the cadaver dogs go crazy. That seems like a really strong lead, and considering the attention this case has got, you would think police would want to release that to show that they've exhausted every lead. But for some reason, they've held this piece of evidence back. And let's not forget about the weird crying voicemail on her boyfriend's phone. What was up with that? Why would, why would she call her boyfriend from someone else's cell phone or from a payphone, get all the way to the voicemail, and just be crying? It's another factor that kind of supports foul play. And... In tandem with that, why did that call trace back to an American Red Cross calling card? I understand during disaster situations, the Red Cross will hand these out to help people who have lost everything so they can contact family, get help, let others know that they're okay. Why didn't Maura have that, and why did she use that to call her boyfriend? And if she truly was scared of her boyfriend, what sense does it make to call him? And one of the simplest questions that's unanswered, that probably ought to be answered, is why did Maura buy so much alcohol before leaving on this trip? I mean, a box of wine, Kahlua, Bailey's Irish cream, a bottle of vodka, And again, they found a beer bottle in her vehicle. That's a ton of alcohol to be drinking or to expect to be drinking. So again, I've said this a half dozen times now, but if this story grips you, you can easily spend the day looking at all the theories that are out there and exploring all these rabbit trails. And I hope that you do because it is a crazy case. It's bizarre. And it that's why it's gotten so much attention, because it has so many unanswered questions that are so daggum frustrating. So now it's time for us to move on to the highlight of the show, the palate cleanser. Carefully selected from a list of jokes curated by my child. Here's today's. What kind of birds do you find in Portugal? You find Portuguese. Yes, 
Portuguese. All right, well, thank you all for listening. I know not just as a country, but as a world, we are going through a hard time with this nasty virus. And I hope my little podcast offers some distraction from the real world. I'll continue to keep on trucking and hopefully provide a tiny bit of entertainment for those of you who listen. This is also a great time to send me suggestions if you're stuck at home. I'd love to hear what topics you'd like for me to cover. My email is info at kmhpodcast.com. Again, info at kmhpodcast.com. I'll do what I can to make this an enjoyable experience for you as we go through this misery together. In return, I only ask for your undying loyalty as expressed through five-star reviews. Subscribing is also something all the really cool kids are doing this year, and you'll want to follow their example. And sharing the show with a good friend or 30 will help us grow. And we want to grow so we can take down all of these corporate shows. Damn the man and save the empire. And props to all of you who know that quote. With that, I'm putting the show to bed. Everybody, please, please, please stay safe. Stay home. Wash your hands. Stop freaking hoarding like maniacs. And just be good to each other. It's not hard. It's so easy to be nice. Just do that. All right. Well, I'm moving out, Russell Sprout. Y'all be good. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.